Hello, I'm Angie, and I can't believe how many of you are out there listening to the Hyperactive, Impulsive, Inattentive Living podcast. Now, as a slave to the algorithms, it really helps when you like, share, and subscribe. So thank you so much to all of you for spreading the message far and wide. Six episodes in, and although I'm wishing I'd picked a short title, I'm not regretting starting this for one minute because I get to meet amazing people and have deep, real and honest conversations every single week. Now, I purposely didn't put ADHD in the title of the podcast because it felt important to be inclusive to everyone, whether diagnosed or undiagnosed, medicated or unmedicated, neurodivergent or neuronormal with just a little bit of spice. And my guest today, Amita Murray, yes, that famous, brilliant author, identifies with plenty of the ADHD traits, but she isn't diagnosed. And as with all my guests, it's impossible to fit who she is into one neat little descriptive box. So here she is to tell you about herself. Thank you, Angela. I'm Amita Murray. Um, okay, so what shall I say about myself? Uh, as soon as, because you, you've given me such an open introduction, now I'm thinking about a, uh, about 20 different things that I could say. Um, I, am, I, <laughs> I am a writer. When people ask me what I do, I tend to say, I, I tend to mutter under my breath that I write stuff. I don't, I don't kind of go into more detail. So when they do, if they do look me up, then they're a little bit surprised that I actually, you know, that that I that I <laughs> that I publish stuff, um, because I will just generally kind of self-deprecatingly just say, oh, you know, mm, I, I, I write stuff, uh, and and so uh, it, it's always a little bit confusing. I'm a, I am a writer. I uh, write novels, so mainly fiction. Um, I've published several short stories, but right now I think I'm concentrating mainly on novels. Uh, and my current Regency series, which is focused on the Marley sisters, who are daughters of an English earl and his Indian mistress uh, in the early 1800s, um, is has just been published with HarperCollins. So the first one, Unladylike Lessons in Love, uh, which I, the title, I love it, it, took us ages to get to it, has just come out in July 2023. Um, so yes, so I write, but I'm also, I've, I do have a hidden kind of academic side, which, uh, you know, I sometimes say I'm a recovering academic or I'm say, or I say, uh, I'm an academic that, uh, you know, I might change my mind about that tomorrow. Um, and I, and I, or I say, oh, I'm an academic, but I don't really lecture or do any marking anymore. <laughs> you know, so I have lots of caveats. <laughs> to do the academic side but I do quite a lot of staff mentoring in a very big arts university which I uh which I really love doing um I have kids I have cats um I live in a very woody area of London so we do lots of walks um yeah so uh, all of these things are quite quite important and keep me quite busy it's already given me so many questions I want to ask you and directions to go in. Just at the start there, you said you mutter under your breath, I'm a writer. Why is this that you don't kind of shout from the rooftops? Because you've got amazing book deals. Your books are amazing. So what is it about not calling yourself a writer or finding that quite difficult? It's a funny one. Uh, and, And I don't, you know, I don't think I have let's say any more imposter syndrome than most creative people do i think most creative people most writers you know feel at what point am i justified to say 
uh, I write or I'm a writer or I'm an author. Because recently, you know, I, I, when I had my book launch, a lot of people came and it was absolutely magnificent that so many people came to support. But a lot of people said, we didn't know that you were a published author or that uh, you had already written, uh, you had already published other novels. And I, and I thought, I've been saying for years that I write. So, you know, did you, did you, what did you think I was talking about? Um, and it just made me think that people do distinguish between, say, writer and author. Or if you say, if you actually mention who you have your publishing deal with, or they think you might be a blogger, or you might, um, you know, perhaps, um, I don't know, but, but perhaps even if you did something on YouTube, you could you could still call yourself a writer because you're writing the scripts or whatever. So I I wasn't quite sure what that was about, and so it, it is kind of new to me this idea that you're that you're meant to clarify, you know, because I also think someone who's a blogger they're a perfectly valid writer. So if I'm just if I'm also saying I write and they're also saying they write, we're both. <laughs> both valid writers so do I have to qualify that with um you know so it partly it's just the kind of um you know not bigging yourself up too much or kind of the relationship that you have with somebody or the friendship that you're developing is more important than the other whatever the other things are that you do in your life um so it's, it's all these things I about imposter syndrome I think I get more sort of, you know, when, I, when I'm confronted by somebody who seems really cool, I don't even know what that means, but say, say someone who seems really cool or someone who's really comfortable in a glamorous situation. And I just think, oh my God, I'm not cool or I'm not comfortable in a glamorous party. Um, so I get more impostery there, more so than perhaps as a writer, because the writing side is so, so important to me that I if anyone else thought I was an imposter, fine, but I, I can't possibly because it's such a lifeline to me. And it's such a thing that is so, so important for me even to just feel okay. And usually my definition of cool is different from other people as well, because I don't think, oh, they're rich, so they're cool, or they've got a massive deal, uh, a publishing deal, so they're cool. I just think of something about their personality, you know, maybe they're really comfortable in their own skin so they're cool or they're comfortable talking about themselves in a way that I'm not and so they're cool and so I think oh my gosh I'm not cool enough for this person but that's where imposter syndrome comes in for me rather than with writing which I think I can't do without anyway so I may as well accept it. I've been asked a few times why did you write this book why do you write how do you write can you talk about your relationship with writing? Absolutely. Um, I think like a lot of people who think of themselves as writers, I've always written in some form or the other. And many times it's just been a journal, you know, when I was little or just scribbling little stories or um, anything bloggy. So I've always done that uh, since I was little. Um, when we were talking about imposter syndrome, one thing that I used to feel, this was more like 10 to 15 years ago when I used to think, oh, but writing fiction that requires a kind of creativity, a special creativity that I don't have. So I used to think that. Um, so I did have that at that time. That's now definitely changed over time. Uh, so I have always written. It's not always been fiction or very seriously kind of uh, focusing on fiction. What I think writing does for me, I think, you know, since we're talking about kind of atypical brain wiring, I the way I think about it is that the person with my kind of brain always has about 20 things going on in their brain. So many of those 20 things might be anxiety provoking or 
things that and anxiety when I say anxiety provoking it's not even current anxiety it could be future anxiety it could be a mortifying thing from 10 years ago it could be um, a conversation I had where I wish I'd done a bit better or I'd processed it a bit better or if I'd been I just wish I'd been more authentic right so all these things are going on in my head all the time and I think so what I'm desperately seeking with a brain like mine is focus and focus isn't going to come from doing my taxes or doing admin or, uh, you know, things that are mundane tasks that we do every day. Those are things I'm trying to put off doing, right? Those are the things that I don't want to do. But what my brain desperately needs is instead of those 20 things that I'm fo- that, that are going on in my brain uh, and kind of interacting with each other and making me anxious or making me agitated, I need a focus that will help me just zone in on one thing. And to me, that focus, um, you know, it can come in unhealthy ways and it can come in healthy ways. Uh, And I've certainly done both. But I think writing is one of those ways where I can actually focus on one thing at one time. I don't watch the clock. Uh, All the the other 19 things in my brain have receded. Uh, they've, They've just been put off, by the way. They haven't gone. So they're just they're just waiting. They're just waiting for me to stop writing so that they can come back. But it's it gives me a break. It gives me a break from the other all the other anxiety provoking things that are going on in my brain. And I actually think, and I realized this over time, that like I said, it doesn't work if it's a task that I don't care about. So if it's if it's doing my taxes or um, even even cleaning, um, you know, uh, I make myself do those things because I know they're important now and again. But it's not obs- it's not like a near obsessive focus that they're giving me. And I think I need a near obsessive focus in order to feel like, I OK, I can just concentrate on one thing now. Um, and writing gives me that. Um, and even when I'm grappling with something in writing that I don't love, even like something like editing or something, it's still giving me an, a, a focus that I otherwise lack. So I, I think in that sense, writing, you know, saves me because in those times when I'm writing, whether it's going to be published or not, whether it's any good or not, I've written loads of things that have been published and I've written loads of things that either haven't been or never will be because they were just me kind of trying out uh, something new and it uh, either didn't work or it didn't work in the form I did it at the time. So to me, whether it's going to be published or not is a slightly, it's a later consideration. At the moment, what it's giving me is this beautiful near obsessive focus on a subject and on words and on rhythm and on uh, the getting lost in characters and spaces, which I'm desperately craving and which if I don't have, I'm bombarded with the other 19 things in my head that aren't uh, giving me that focus, but they're, they're, they're not quite as pleasant or, uh, you know, they're not, they're not creative. They're, they're anxiety provoking. So that (laughs) to me, that's probably the clearest, clearest I have ever said why I write. I don't think I, you know, because I I think that you'll understand what I mean. Uh, I don't think I've ever described it in that way before, but that's it. I feel so seen the way you put it into words there. It really, yeah, I feel very seen by what you're saying. Yeah, this is why I can talk to you about this, because I feel like you'll get what what I'm trying to say, because, you know, when, and when you mentioned this podcast to me uh, and, and, and the, the work that you're doing as well, I just I just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I I have been looking for resources that talk about neurodivergence without calling it a disorder 
because I actually think, you know, instead of thinking of neurodivergence as disorders, we need to think of it as, you know, our brains confronted with a world that is not made for our brains. It's made for neurotypical people. Um, and, uh, and you know, there are lots of things going wrong with the world. So we do need to rethink that anyway. Um, you know, the, the neurotypical way isn't necessarily working for the planet. But uh, I, I think that when you said you're working on resources to do with, um, um, you know, uh, atypical brain wiring or neurodivergence or ADHD, to me, that's just like, oh, as adults, we need that. Um, as women, we need that because so much of the literature is concentrated around children and it doesn't look the same. Do you feel like you've built a life for yourself that allows the best parts of an atypical brain to flourish? Or is there uh, a give and take, a bit of a push and pull between wanting to be creative, but actually being able to be creative? At the moment, I can finally say, oh, I'm, I have a work life that allows me to be creative and that really um, uses the best sides of me uh, without uh, without putting too much pressure on the the, the less the, the the sides of me that aren't as skilled perhaps or you know that 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 I'm not as good at. Um, so I can finally say that, but it's taken so much trial and error. I've taken jobs and left jobs that for everyone else seem like great jobs, you know, so um, a dance studies academic. Wow. I mean, that sounds creative. That sounds fulfilling. It sounds ethical. It sounds idealistic because you're working with students. You're doing something arty. And I've left job like jobs like that at many times, in fact, because the work environment didn't seem the the kind of environment I wanted they didn't um, perhaps uh, these are different reasons uh, that I'm just uh, there are different potential reasons so for example it could be that people didn't seem as warm and ethical as I would like or or it, it might be that the their idea of the world didn't match you know didn't match the kind of the idealistic vision that I have or it could be that the work became a bit repetitive or less creative. And so these aren't good reasons to leave a, you know, a perfectly good job, I would say. They're pre pretty, pretty uh, crap reasons in a way. Um, but I have left jobs for that reason. And, and other people have said, why are you leaving this perfectly good job? And you won't get, you know, you won't get maternity cover or you won't have this or you won't have that. Why are you doing that without having something else to go to? And all I can say is it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the right kind of environment. Um, and so I have left jobs like that. I have left a publishing contract where the, the thing that they wanted me to do, and it was a perfectly, again, perfectly good publishing contract with a fantastic publisher, where it didn't feel like it was the kind of thing I wanted to do for forever. And so I have left those kinds of things in the past, which to other people don't make sense. But to me, they do perfectly make sense, those choices, because something very viscerally didn't feel right about those situations. But I think now in the last few years, I've really come to a point where I'm writing things that I want to write. And I feel like I can do that um, sort of in the long run, keep on writing things in that kind of genre or area. But I also have a job that I actually really think, you know, the people that are in that job. I don't love absolutely everything about the job, but the the, the people in that job are idealistic, they're ethical, they're they're trying hard, they're be, they're lovely people. So I have I've had to choreograph that for myself where I feel finally that uh you know the person I am 
is is right in the situation I'm in, where I've had to, you know, for so, so many years kind of go, no, this isn't quite right. And when something doesn't feel right to me, it's a very visceral, physical thing. So it's not just like, a, oh, you know, it's a little bit boring or it, it's it's not quite right. It's 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 physically very uncomfortable and it's kind of making me sick. So which to other people, again, uh, those jobs will just seem like, oh, but that was just a perfectly, perfectly good job um, or, or a perfectly good situation. So you feel like now, I think weirdly, part of it is that uh, the pandemic has allowed people to work more from home. So I get to do more hours in a, in a job that I quite enjoy, um, but I can do it sort of in a good hybrid way where I can go in perhaps once a week or once or twice a week, but I can do things from home. So that's really helped me actually. But it also means that the time I might have been spending commuting to work, I can now do some writing and, uh, you know, I've got that extra time to, in the evening, I've got a bit more energy to, to do a bit of writing. So yes, I do feel like I've got to a point where I love what I do and I love the situation and it allows me to be creative and passionate and a bit intense but I've had to work hard at getting here. I, this wouldn't have happened if I had sort of been complacent about the different situations I was in at different times. When you describe visceral emotions, I describe my emotions as fizzing inside me. Could Do you think it could have gone any other way? Because when those emotions feel so visceral, it almost feels like you can't do anything but leave that job or you can't do anything but follow your emotions you know it's funny uh i was reading this author and i hope i'm not mispronouncing her name and she's written this beautiful little book uh and it's marianne eloise and she talks about uh neurodivergence and she she you know one of the things she said was and i'm paraphrasing because i don't have it in front of me but she but she says you know i can never do anything but what i really want right so i, I can't settle for anything less and it it, it is that visceral feeling that you kind of just have to follow because otherwise it makes you feel sick. I think just like writing, your life is also a process of discovery. So I know lots of young people, and I, I was one of them, but lots of young people, because I, I work with lots of undergrads, you know, they think, oh, I need to find something when I'm 20 or when I'm 18, and I need to stick with it. And when once I've got it, it'll take this linear path. And this is the path that the world tells us is the right path that you take what you pick one thing and then you kind of stick with it and this leads to so much pain for a lot of people because first of all when you're 18 what you think you want this is going to change and evolve and you you are in fact by doing things and choosing things you're going through a process of perhaps elimination or further choice or uh, you know this is trial and error so to me uh, you know, you first of all can't can't pick when you that early on, and you have to go through that, through that trial and error. But what I also find um, is that uh, you know I I do follow that visceral feeling. So, for example, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I mean by that visceral feeling, and I know I I know that you know already, but just to kind of explain, sometimes I ca I'll come out of a meeting, which is a work meeting, so not necessarily a writing meeting, but a but a sort of a more a job meeting. And some meetings are absolutely fine, but then there's some that feel like they had no purpose and we kind of just sat around, uh, you know, saying what we were doing, but without any, we didn't, we didn't connect on any kind of human level. That's one thing, but also nothing got done. So it was just a kind of a, we have to do this. So we're going to do this. It, it ticked a box, some, someone's box. I don't know whose box. 
no one's acknowledged that it's their books. So it's, it's, we've come out of this meeting. Now, some people might be able to shrug that meeting off and you'd be like, you know, okay, well, this is just a part of the job and I have to do it. And up to me, now I'm carrying the weight of the job, that meeting, sorry, that, that meeting, at least for the rest of the day, potentially for a couple of days, because I have had this horrible visceral feeling of I am bored, but also I don't see the point of it. So I can handle the boredom if I could see the point of it, or I could handle it if it didn't have much of a point, but it was interesting. But it's neither. So it's neither <laughs> neither something that I think is useful nor interesting. So we're left with this horrible feeling of why did I just do that? And of course, I've the reason I did that because for a job, I had to do it. Um, but now I'm carrying this weight in my tummy. So my tummy feels like it's, you know, it's, it's all contracted and shriveled up and my chest is feeling like that. Uh, and I'm feeling a bit sick and I'm feeling a bit agitated. And I'm probably going to have to let off that steam in some way, in, in hopefully a healthy way, like exercising or, or writing or in an unhealthy way, which is to uh, I need to eat a big slab of cake in order to feel OK. And to other people, that might feel a bit sort of what well, it's just a meeting. And I know loads of people like that who tolerate it, but I find it intolerable. So it's a very visceral, sicky feeling of having spent time doing this. And I've been saying this for years before I even started looking at ADHD or neurodivergence that, you know, it's physically painful to me to be in, a, in, in this in this situation. So it's actually trying to see you know why am I so strange like why do I take these things quite so intensely where other people don't is where I've started looking into neurodivergence and ADHD and thinking oh maybe this is this explains quite a lot um, of what I've been saying for years I feel and uh, without having the kind of the knowledge or the vocabulary to support it. And as you've started to look into it as you started to research a bit more Firstly, what have you found out? And secondly, what is that knowledge doing for you? Is it helping you? Is it making you feel like you're pathologizing yourself? Is it useful to, to know more about neurodiversity in atypical brains? It's incredibly empowering. So I remember a few years ago, and I, again, I was in a work situation where someone said something which actually wasn't terrible at all but which really which really hurt at that time it wasn't even it wasn't it wasn't that terrible it was I, I could intellectually see that actually it's a pretty benign thing to have said uh, it wasn't abusive it wasn't abrasive it was just something that at that time felt horrible to me and I came home again with that kind of agitation and the weight and the the, the you know the the sicky feeling and I was literally looking up why do I feel more sensitive to some things than other people. So I was looking this up and I'm doing literally doing this research. And I came across uh, Highly Sensitive People by Elaine Aaron, who has written about this concept of people who are 20% of the population who might experience things in a more acutely sensitive way than others. So that was the first moment. And she talks about it as, you know, you could be, for example, which are less, uh, th these aren't as uh, pertinent to me, but you might feel more sensitive to fibres, certain fibres or uh, cloth, or you might feel sensitive to lights or um, noise or crowds. Uh, to me, it's more sensitivity to what someone has said or a social situation taken on other people's moods or feelings. So uh, when I saw that, that was the first moment of, oh, you know, this makes sense now. And uh, maybe 
it isn't that it's, uh, everything is terribly wrong with me. It is that uh, my brain is wired a, a, a bit differently. So that was the first kind of moment of, oh, okay, you know, th- this is something I can understand. I started reading up more over the years on highly intense people and highly sensitive people. And those things, again, you know, felt like they were reassuring and they they started telling me about the positive sides of those things instead of just the you better hide from people because you're so super sensitive you know so it, it it felt like I could I could use the 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 good sides of those things the, the positive sides recently I don't even know what it was because you know when when you think of ADHD you you are told about hyperactivity and uh, you know, as as if attention attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and so and you you you're told about children and how it manifests in children. It was something I had never even looked into because uh, I'm not necessarily hyperactive, and I'm not de- I'm not deficient in attention. So how does that how does that make sense? But I came across people who are writing about adult ADHD um, and talking about hyperactivity as a mental thing so it's it's a mental it's a ment- you're mentally hyperactive so in in a sense you might not seem like you're pacing about the room or you you you're fidgeting or you're you know you know you're doing any of the usual things that you think are hyperactive you might but your brain might never stop might never rest there might be 20 things going on in it all at the same time uh you might hop from thing to thing to thing and a characteristic that i think i've identified for myself that even when other people think you need to switch off now and you need to rest, for me, that just means I need to focus on something, like one thing. I, it doesn't mean that I focus on nothing or that I can actually shut my brain off because I can't. So it's actually restful for me when I when people say, are you serious that you've just done school runs during the day with your kids and you've uh, worked in your job and now you're saying that you're going to write? And I say, well, that is relaxing to me because I can focus. On, on a creative task, uh, being quiet and sitting down and doing nothing is terrifying. So, so to me, when I think of hyperactivity as a mental thing rather than a physical manifestation, I, it makes complete sense that I do hop from thing to thing. I think about 20 things at the same time. I don't find it easy to stop doing things or stop focusing on things. So that was, that was revealing. Uh, the attention deficit thing. So now I'm going to talk about this fantastic writer called William Dodson, who has identified certain characteristics of uh, ADHD adults. And one of the things that he mentions is this idea of your, what is it called, interest-based nervous system. So you can absolutely focus, but you have to be interested in the thing that you're focusing on. So if someone else says, you need to write an evaluation report, I'll run a mile to get away from that, or you need to do this admin task or this spreadsheet or this whatever, um, and I will put it off and put it off and put it off um, until I absolutely know that, okay, now I have to do it. And then I'll make myself do it. I'll probably have to have some chocolate next to me or put some music on that is soothing or go go for a charity shop crawl later on, you know, to make myself feel better. Um, so interest-based focus, meaning that you aren't deficient in attention, it's just that you hyper focus on things that are either challenging or a novelty or are interesting to you. Wow. Okay. Why didn't? Why did I not know about this when I was a child? I wish I had, because I was criticised relentlessly as a child for all the things that now I see as gifts. And so you know, I've had to work on that. 
The second thing William Dodson said was emotional hyperarousal. Now, I don't even have to look at what that means to be like, I am always emotionally hyperaroused. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm always feeling a lot. Um, and it's always intense. And it's always, it could be good or bad or both. Um, or it could be multiple different things. So some people, when you ask them how they're feeling, might say good or bad. And I can tell you 20 different things that I'm feeling that are all intense. Uh, so emotional hyperarousal is easy. It's, it's like a given and it, again, explains a lot. And the third thing now, I think that is actually to me the one that made me go, nobody told me this and I never knew about this. And the third characteristic that William Dodson talks about is rejection sensitivity. When I read about that, oh my gosh, it was just like a what? This is an ADHD symptom? What are you telling me? Are you, you know, how have I not known this? And this is what I've been looking at with the high, highly sensitive person and the, you know, all of that. Rejection sensitivity simply means that you are, that rejection, you know, feeling of being rejected. Someone might not even have rejected you. They might not even know that they did something just then, but you have perceived something in their, something they said or their expression or something they failed to do that you think was really important. And you've taken that to mean either rejection or some form of failure or some form of criticism. And you can't shrug that off because it is physically painful and sickening to feel like that. And to me, rejection feels like death. You know, it feels like now I can't bear this. Um, when I read that, I just thought, what? Uh, you know, rejection sensitivity is an ADHD you know, the thing? I, I never knew that. And then I started looking into it more. And interestingly, I think his writings have evolved because he did used to sort of talk about medication more and uh, calling it a disorder more. But over time, I can see his writings have gone to looking at it as just being neuroatypical and how they're gifts and how it's the world that, you know, asks us to conform uh, to ways of working that aren't right for us. But given the right circumstances for us, we can actually thrive. Um, so when I read these, uh, this is where it suddenly hit me that actually uh, something that I would never have really considered looking into was something I'd better really look into uh, properly because it suddenly made so much sense. It was so empowering. You know, it was so empowering to read that. Um, the fact that rejection sensitivity could be a thing, it would be, it could be, a, it, it could, it isn't just like, I'm crazy. Uh, and why does this feel to me like this when it doesn't to other people? It could actually be a thing. It could be, a, if, it could be a defining characteristic of something. It was so incredibly empowering. So it just suddenly felt like it's okay. Actually, it's okay to be like this. The rejection sensitivity, finding out that this was a thing for me, this existed, was the biggest aha moment for me ever. And that is the thing, I think, that has had the most negative impact on my life, that has had the most impact on the people who love me and the people around me. But trying to explain it to my very well-rounded boyfriend, who doesn't understand what this is when I say to him but you didn't tell me you loved me this morning he's like of course I love you I, I told you when we went to bed last night why why do you need me to tell you again in the morning and me trying to explain because I feel you don't love me that that's all gone any history of what you have told me in the past doesn't exist if you've not told me this morning you love me I think you hate me and it sounds so insane to even say that out loud that I understand why he doesn't understand it but 
it's made me so much chiller with myself since I figured out what this was. I'm just kinder to myself now, give myself so much more space and grace and kindness now. This is so right. And it also actually helps you give that kindness to other people. What's happening between the time that your boyfriend last said they love you and this morning when they didn't, your brain can say, well, they might have changed their mind or they might, I might have done something to put them off, you know. So your brain is telling you that there is a perfectly reasonable explanation for why they might have stopped loving you overnight, you know, magically. Um, so you, they might have realized things about you that you've known all along, but they haven't. And, and now they don't love you anymore. So people change, you know, and you're you're saying it about about words. And I can I can say about someone not making eye contact or uh, when they're talking to me or we had a chat but uh, they didn't follow up on something or the other I said or their body language they're half turned away or something and that I can that to me feels like rejection so to me in my brain it is totally possible that someone who did like you or love you two hours ago or a day before or a week ago uh, because they haven't texted you or they haven't said something or they, they were busy last time you saw them, that that means they have stopped liking or loving you. And they, uh, to me, that seems perfectly rational. <laughs> yeah. So, it, it, yes, it's such an aha moment. You're so right about that. How do you manage this being a writer? Because, dear Lord, this is an industry that you get a lot of rejections. Oh, yeah, that is such a good question, actually. I think I'm more... Uh, I'm more sensitive to interpersonal rejection. So that's one thing. I do think that. Um, I suppose, you know, I've, again, you have to, you have to develop a thicker skin, don't you, in some ways. And as a writer, I think I had to keep coming back to the question of why I write. So many, many times where there had been sort of, you know, sort of something that might be looked at as a failure. So I didn't get a deal or an agent said no or something or the other happened. Um, in fact, for this three book deal that you mentioned that I currently have for my Regency series, a very big agent had said, it's too character driven to be commercially viable. So they didn't take it on. So that things like that have happened many, many times. As you said, as a creative person, rejection is built into the fabric of the job. You cannot get away from it. You, you know, you can you can spend years doing it and you can, you can't get away from it. So I had to, one, really coach myself to come back to the question of why I write. It's a lifeline. I had to reaffirm that to myself many, many times. Like, so what if this has happened? Are you going to stop writing? So are you going to really? Can you? Um, so I would do things like say to myself, you know, so for example, say a commercial deal has fallen through. I can then tell myself, writing I still have to write so maybe I can I can write in a different way I can write short stories short, short stories only and they don't pay but that's okay because I will I would still have to write so I could tell myself things like that sure enough though after a little while I would perk my you know I would perk up I would kind of pick myself dust myself off and go I need to try this again within it with using a different way and and the reason I've kept on doing that to tell you the truth because even though I write for myself because I have to, I know that if I get paid to write, I am then less likely to need to do boring stuff. That's what it boils down to. If I'm paid to write, I don't have to do 
stuff I hate. <laughs> I am merely trying to get away from the boring meetings and the admin and the things that don't make sense to me. And the, you know, the the kind of the, as Elizabeth Gilbert calls it, the shit sandwich that comes with every single job. But I love it. But it allows you to avoid all the other crap jobs that you don't want to do. But you talked about you don't like being told what you have to do. You have got a three book deal now, which means you need to write book one, book two, book three. And I assume they're not all finished yet. Are they all finished yet? This is where I'm going to tell you this thing about deadlines. Okay, I hate deadlines. I think that some people love deadlines. And, you know, the people that say, oh, when I have a deadline, I do, I work. And I just think, oh, my God, I don't understand that. Because what happens to me when there's a deadline is that I will now start telling you a story, but I that's not my natural way of writing. My natural way of writing is actually to let the story come to me and let it evolve and let uh, get to know the characters and then the characters kind of do the story for me. So in, in a sense, when I'm writing, it's a process of discovery. It's not really something I already know that I'm putting down on paper. I'm learning as I go. If you take that away, because now I have a deadline, I am, I can't do it because, um, and the words I need a synopsis before you've written the novel are just horror story for me because I just think, how can I give you a synopsis of something I haven't written? And worse, if I give you a synopsis for something I haven't written, when I try and write it now and fit it into the synopsis that I've written, that is just, uh, th that's sort of murderous. Like it, you're, you're, you're killing me with that idea um, because now I'm trying to fit myself into something that uh, the characters won't naturally go towards, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of doing something artificial. So I've realized this about myself, uh, you know, through again, lots of trial and error, through lots of uh, heartache. What I, what I try and do now is I work about a year or more ahead of deadline. Now the, the publisher, when the deal is made, is going to take at least a year for the first book to come out. So I had loads of time. So the, my deadline for the second book was at least a year after that. But I had, I think, written that book very early on in the process. I was already done with it. Anytime somebody asked me for a synopsis, I was like, of course I can give you a synopsis. I've written the book. I know exactly what happened. So by the time that the second one wasn't even handed over to the publishers yet, I had already written the third. So it, it, it's, it's to me, it is so important not to work to deadline, but work to my deadline, which is usually a, a year ahead. I feel very relieved to hear you say this because this was my question. That's kind of my personal question that I really wanted to know is like career advice. I have no idea what a book is going to be when I start it. I wouldn't be able to tell you until I'm right at the end. You, were you mentioned earlier about these gifts that you were criticised for when you were younger it sounds like your creativity is this huge part of who you are. Is that what you see as the gifts that you were criticised for? Oh, I think creativity is a huge gift. I mean, it's such a huge gift because it's with you again when nothing else is. So if, if, you, if you, for example, go swimming and the pandemic hits and you can't go swimming anymore or you know what whatever the thing is that you do to feel okay about yourself 
if there are many times you can't, you can still employ it. Um, but, you know, I was relentlessly, oh my goodness, uh, by my parents, by my uh, teachers, by people around me, I was criticized for uh, one thing was that I would flip from thing to thing. So I wanted to try this and I wanted to hyper-focus on it. And then I wanted to try this other thing and I wanted to focus on that. Now, as a writer, I get to do that because every book can have a different focus and I can just go, I want need 25 books on this subject. Um, and I can I can indulge that. When I was little, of course, I didn't have that. That I was criticized for quite relentlessly by my parents. The other thing what, that I was criticized for was, for was things like daydreaming. Now, daydreaming to me is not only part, an essential part of the creative process, it's also hyper focus of its own kind which is quite soothing for someone who is otherwise going to obsess about anxieties and fears and worries so a soothing daydream is actually quite a good way of you know not having those hundred other things to worry about but the other thing was I would do quite well in school in subjects I was interested in but quite average in subjects I wasn't interested in what people who criticized me for that didn't realize was that even to do average in those subjects meant I had to deal with sickening feelings of having to study that subject. People didn't realize that. People would just say, well, why aren't you doing well? I think that I certainly, uh, you know, have to have had to fight a lot against, you know, the world's opinion of a creative person or the world's opinion of, you know, what you're meant to be doing or what a sensible person does. You know, and, and I've used food, I've used dysfunctional relationships, I've used uh, even obsessive daydreaming to get away from that criticism and that, because the problem with criticism is even when it goes away, because you're an adult and it's not so in your face anymore, you internalize it. So now anything that other people aren't saying to you, you're saying to yourself. So you're saying, why do you, why are you so fickle? Why do you go from thing to thing? Why aren't you sticking to that one thing that you said? Uh, and you internalize that criticism where it becomes self-loathing and it becomes, I can't bear myself and I can't bear to be in my body. But whereas if you then just step away from the unhealthy things like the dysfunctional relationships or the food or the whatever and say, I actually am okay with all this chaos. <laughs> I, I do okay with this chaos. All of a sudden it, it isn't quite as debilitating. It's actually something that you can use. And when I use that chaos in my creative process, it totally works. But I didn't, it took me years and decades to get to a point where I realized it worked for me. And you don't see them as gifts because you've been told they're not gifts. It sounds like a complete flip reversal. Those things you were criticized for as a child are now the things that make you so good at what you do and allow you to do what you do. You sort of get very good at passing. You, you get good at passing as neurotypical um, in many situations because you know what that looks like and you think, you know, in this social situation, if I just do this, this will be the normal thing to do. Um, whereas you don't stop and say, what do I, what, what is authentic to me in this situation? What can I do? And you carry the weight of that in authenticity because you also are a person that believes in being very authentic. And then you're carrying the baggage of having enacted a part in a social situation that you thought was normal. And it was only a few years ago, I think, you know, like four or five years ago where I went, I need to stop doing this. I need to stop saying what is the normal thing to do and do the thing that I want to do. And, the, you know, the, the gift of that has been 
oh, I mean, it's so enormous. I thought the gift of that would be I would feel authentic, but I would not have any friends because, of course, now I'm not passing as normal. So how would I have any friends? Now, this came home to me really recently where I, despite the absolute terror of doing a book launch, I did it because I thought this series is important. I need to do a book launch. I did it. 85 people turned up to support me, which uh, uh, the bookshop and the publishers were like, we have never seen this kind of thing happen before. And I thought this is to me a person who has always felt like a misfit and who's who has always who has recently decided not to try to seem normal or typical and to just be myself, even if it comes at a cost of having no friends. And ironically enough, this is when I have the most authentic friendships and I have the people that support me the most. And why? It's because all this time where I was trying to be normal, I, you know, if only I had known that to be myself is okay. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. I thought I'm too intense. Uh, I get too close too quickly. Uh, I need people too much. I mean, gosh, there could be a long list. There's a, there is a long list. So I had to say in that crowd, you know, the book is tiny, but you are huge, you know, that you're here and that you're supporting me. And uh, this this to me is a miracle. It's a weird feeling of having to really work at knowing who you are and making that a really important thing because the baggage of passing, I was carrying it with me all the time, constantly. I only got formally diagnosed last year and how you're describing becoming comfortable with authentically being yourself and stopping having this second person narrating every single thing I'm doing, telling me, you're an idiot, stop talking, you're being stupid. That actually only came for me with diagnosis. So I find it really interesting that you're in that same headspace as me. It seems like we're in a quite a similar headspace, but you did this without needing to go down the diagnosis route. Could you explain why or how? Yeah, yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And I, you know, I can almost feel myself welling up listening to your experiences too. It's so magical, really, to connect with somebody who, you know, who understands what you're going through, because they're going through something similar. So it's really, really lovely to hear that. Um, I have to say, if a diagnosis would be easy to get, to tell you the truth, I would go for it. So it's not necessarily a, I don't want a diagnosis. It's more of a, how much hassle am I going to put myself, am I willing to put myself through to get it? I only did it because there was a one-click payment option. But I'll caveat it with, I paid privately and the process, it is stressful. I think, you know, that is part of it, that I... I have kind of accepted that I have very strong ADHD characteristics and it, it is very, very empowering. Um, so would a diagnosis add anything to that? That um, You know, it may add in, in a sense, you know, if, if, say, for example, a line manager knew about it, they, they, they might, you know, they might be able to offer me support in a different way. I get that. Um, but for myself, I will read, you know, anything empowering about ADHD and creativity, like the things that you're talking about, the work that you're doing, I will gobble it up because I want to know more. And I you know, so I will do that regardless of diagnosis. I will find out the podcasts and the books and the 
resources that don't that don't medicalize and pathologize it but that treat it with respect and that that say these are the gifts that go with it and these are some of the challenges like you say we all have to find like my deadlines and your color-coded calendars we have to find ways that we can manage because of course the rent does need to be paid and your kids need to be picked up from school every single day and it's not just now and again when you feel like it and and I have loved starting to do things like this and speak more publicly about it mainly because I really really hate small talk and people with these ADHD tendencies love to go deep really really quickly and I'm like oh here's my tribe this is it and none of it feels weird and awkward it's so right it's so right and the small talk can really actually also and again it doesn't just feel a bit weird it, it carries the weight of feeling horrible I too exactly like you like I said you know this has been an empowering thing to talk about in this depth. And I think the way you've spoken about this has really shown the internal struggle that's going on with these kind of symptoms, these visceral internal feelings, and also these incredibly wonderful parts. And what we hope to, what I hope to do on this podcast is like this nuanced reality of it. It's not black and white. Two things can coexist at once. I can feel supreme rejection whilst feeling total confidence in my writing. Um, and I think you've described that beautifully. Oh, thank you. And I, I, I've just absolutely adored talking to you. Oh, what an amazing conversation. And if you want to find out more about Amita, all her details are in the show notes. Her latest book, Unladylike Lessons in Love, is out now. And if you like the TV series Bridgerton, you're going to love it. As someone who doesn't usually read period fiction, I'm an absolute super fan. It's romantic, funny, sexy, exciting. It's brilliant. The writing is just an absolute chef's kiss of perfection. Finally, if you want to get a weekly dose of hyperactive living in your inbox, subscribe to the newsletter. And if you want to join the community, there's now a private Facebook group too. And you can find all the details in the notes. See you next week.